0: Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. To get things started, I want to read you something and I'm going to ask you to consider whether or not you agree. So here goes The majority of people in leadership roles today are incompetent. Most leaders have very negative effects on their followers and subordinates, causing low levels of engagement, trust, and productivity, and high levels of burnout and stress. Now, Just to tip my hand, I'm very much hoping that wherever you are in the world right now that you're nodding your head in the affirmative, yelling out hallelujah, or at least pleased to know someone else finally sees what you see. That's because there are simply no meaningful measures to argue otherwise, and the whole reason this podcast exists is to hold the mirror up to all the leadership practices doing the greatest harm and to spotlight the ones research proves will restore employee engagement and well-being once and for all. To that end, I am thrilled to introduce you to the person who wrote the words I just read to you, Tomas Chamaro Premusic. And like so many other of our previous guests, Tomas is an especially impressive guy. He's a professor of business psychology at both University College London and Columbia University and an associate at Harvard's Entrepreneurial Finance Lab. He's also the chief scientist at the Manpower Group, a Fortune 500 staffing firm, where he clearly has access to countless studies on employee motivation, managerial effectiveness, and all the behaviors that limit leadership success. And in his new book, Why Do So Many Incompetent Men Become Leaders and How to Fix It? He's digested all these studies into some rather stunning conclusions, which we're about to discuss. So just to wet your whistle before I bring him on, here are five things Tomas believes that directly challenge our traditional beliefs and understanding. Number one, most leaders tend to believe they are far more effective than they are. Number two, since most leaders are men, most male leaders believe they are far more effective than they really are. Number three, while we commonly believe charismatic people make the best leaders and repeatedly choose managers who possess this trait, Charismatic leaders often lack an ability to care about people other than themselves or display empathy, two huge leadership flaws. Number four, the most successful leaders possess high intellect and high emotional intelligence. And people with very high EQ specifically prove to be the better managers. And finally, one more conclusion we'll surely be discussing, Tomás believes women leaders generally outperform men. All these assertions deserve some deep and rich discussion, of course, and so I'm excited to now dig into them. And so we give you a very, very warm welcome to the podcast, Tomas.
1: Thank you for having me, it's great to be here, Mark.
0: Well, I'm thrilled to have you here, and the big idea of your book is that most people around the world work under ineffective leaders, and yet we continue to hire new managers who possess their exact same traits. So in my first two questions for you, Tomas, One, tell how you proved the majority of leaders aren't as effective as, you know, we think we are. And in light of this, how is it possible that organizations keep making the same hiring mistakes when we hire for managers?
1: Yeah, so great questions, you know. And I think you can tell that leaders aren't as good as they think, mostly by looking at 360 data. So data from 360 degree surveys, particularly how leaders are rated by their teams, subordinates, or followers, what we see is that the majority of leaders rate themselves more positively than they are rated by their teams. Then there is a wide range of other data that indicates that leaders are not effective in general, full stop, irrespective of what they think of themselves. So we know that most people are disengaged, they don't like their jobs, and that's mostly because they don't like their bosses or managers. That's the main reason why there are so many passive job seekers who are waiting for other jobs. That's the main reason why people leave traditional employment altogether to work for themselves or become entrepreneurs, even though the chances of succeeding are very low. And as to how it's possible that organizations make these hiring mistakes, well, some make them more than others, so it's important to remember that those who are more talent-focused and meritocratic in their efforts to identify and improve leaders actually outperform their competitors. They have higher levels of revenues, profits, productivity, net promoter scores, and so forth. So in a way, the issue takes care of itself because those that don't get their leadership issues right will be eliminated.
0: What percentage of organizations do you think have figured this out? So in other words, they're where you are, close to where you are, and how many of them are continuing to make the same mistake over and over?
1: Yeah, I think it's safe to apply the kind of a basic Pareto distribution that we would apply when we are Vetting or measuring individual performance to organizations. I mean, in any sector or industry, you have 20% of the companies or less that account for 80% of profits, revenues, productivity, market caps, etc. They tend to do talent and leadership development and identification well, and vice versa. So, the main question that I ask is. In an age with so much data, with so much science on what good leadership looks like, why is the average experience that people have of their bosses so bleak? And if you don't care about the data, just go to Google and type in my boss is or my manager is to see how most people experience leadership. Things such as crazy, abusive, unbearable, toxic come out. And, you know, why are we seeing people say transformational, inspirational, rewarding, amazing, competent? That's not the case.
0: Well, we kind of know this. And so, you know, one of the big questions is, I think, you know, Gallup numbers that you quote in your book. I actually had an opportunity in writing an article for Fast Company, I got permission to actually announce those results before Gallup even did six years ago, which said that thirty percent of you know American workers are engaged and the seventy percent that aren't are either not engaged or actively disengaged, so unhappy in their jobs that they basically want to retaliate. So you've got this very large number of people who are unhappy in their jobs, and this was the shot heard around the world, and everybody continues to talk about it. I can't tell you how many articles I read that start off with this data, and yet the numbers aren't significantly improved. So this goes back to your, we keep making the same mistakes. My question to you is, do we even care I mean, do companies even care about engagement or is this just like, look, just come in and do your job, take your paycheck, and if you don't like it, then we'll find somebody else.
1: Yeah, it's a great point. And I think the issue is not so much that they don't care. They're not in the business of making employees happy as they sometimes pretend to be. They want productive employees. And I think, you know, we're living in what I would call the age of the spiritual workaholic. So we want high-performing machines, but we want them to be, fulfilled and have a sense of purpose. Can you imagine a hundred years ago in Friedrich Taylor's assembly lines or (laughs) if one employee complained to the other because he or she didn't experience a sense of calling or a higher sense of purpose? (laughs) So today we know that engaged employees are more productive and that it helps to give employees almost consumer-like experiences. And companies are investing a lot of money on this. Even the companies or organizations that Gallup and its competitors survey are the most successful, wealthiest and pro-talent management firms in the world. And yet, while they're spending or maybe even wasting all this money trying to improve the office, the canteen, the food, the working conditions, a lot of the times they're still traumatizing employees with bad leaders.
0: Right. Okay. So we're going to dig into that in a big way here. So let's talk about charisma. (laughs) In your book, you say that most people strongly believe that charismatic people make good leaders. So tell us why you think charisma often masks personality traits that do more harm than good.
1: Yeah. And so I think we focus a lot on charisma because it's easy to observe. In fact, it is an attribution that we make. So it's a bit like you listen to a song that you like and then you say, wow, this artist, this musician is good. Well, you just like it. That's what it is, right? And we know that the factors that predict whether people are seen as charismatic or not, have very little to do with actual leadership competence. There are things like attractiveness, power, even gender. We're more likely to attribute charisma to men than to women. So the issue isn't so much that charisma is bad or toxic per se, but it is an amplifier. If you are a competent leader who is going to work hard to ensure the best for the organization and you have integrity, I'm very happy for you to be charismatic because you're going to be able to draw people in and accomplish good things quicker. But if you are a crook or have no integrity or you are incompetent, I don't want you to be charismatic because then the damage that you're going to make is going to be exacerbated. This sounds like an extreme range of examples, but for sure Stalin, Hitler, and Mao would have been a lot less destructive had they had no charisma at all. And in a way, the same applies to any any leader. We get sidetracked and focused on charisma when what should matter is their substance, not their style.
0: So is charisma a warning sign when we're interviewing people for leadership roles?
1: So you can be charismatic and competent, but if we only focus on charisma and after a few minutes of interviewing you, we say, wow, this guy is good, great culture fit, I love them, They're, you know, you are charismatic, confident, etc. cetera, a lot of the times you're going to select in for dark side traits that you might not have realized. We know, for example, that narcissists, and especially psychopathic individuals, interview very well, and they are often seen as charming and charismatic in short-term interactions.
0: So interview in longer or more frequent interviews, how do you identify? I mean, one of the things you say in the book is that I think the number is in management, there's three to four times the percentage of people who are psychopaths in comparison to the rest of the world, right? So did I get that right?
1: Yeah, correct. So people with psychopathic tendencies and narcissistic tendencies over index in management, especially in leadership. So the higher up you go, the more they are overrepresented. And yeah, it is by a factor of four or five. So, of course, I'm not saying scrub the interview altogether, but interviews need to be well designed, well structured. They need to be pinpointing very relevant attributes that actually indicate or signal competence. And the hardest thing to do is to ignore all the irrelevant stuff, not just whether somebody is charismatic or confident, but whether they are male, female, white, Spanish, Hispanic, uh, black, etc. So interviews are desirable because they give us a lot of information that we want but don't need. (laughs) Data-driven predictive assessments, actual data on the candidate's past performance, even how they have been rated by their direct reports in the past, that's really the substance part. And even if you have interviews that are well-designed, they would only improve accuracy by 5 or 10%. Over all these other things, data-driven kind of um, signals that I just mentioned.
0: In your book, you mentioned leaders like German Chancellor Angela Merkel and General Motors CEO Mary Barra as being hugely effective leaders, while really not being charismatic at all. But it's not just their low charisma that makes them behave differently. They focus on others and much less on themselves. They tend to be a little bit more nurturing and make other people shine using your language and. So tell us what motivates this kind of caring leadership, even at this level, and why you don't often find it in charismatic people.
1: Yeah, so you're absolutely on point here. I mean, the reason why they are effective is their humility, their self-criticism, their altruism, their coachability. And their competence, right? But the fact that they are not charismatic, unfortunately, means that we rarely talk about them, and so instead we're left with these flawed role models of, you know, people that look a lot like the Wolf of Wall Street instead. And so there will be lots Mm -hmm. of documentaries on Silvio Berlusconi, but pretty much none on Angela Merkel. And unfortunately, that conveys the message that oh, you need to have this attractive, captivating dark side in order to be a leader? Well, the reality is that in a rational world, we would be able to make objective evaluations of a leader's competence and talent. And Merkel is a relevant example. And I always tell the story when I was doing my PhD in the UK, I had a roommate who was a German computer scientist. And ahead of the elections, he went to this website, and this was the late 90s. Answered a 50-question survey or questionnaire on his political attitudes, what he thought on healthcare, the economy, unemployment, you know, refugees. And after that, the survey said, OK, this is the candidate that best represents your views. And then actually went and voted for it without having seen a televised debate, without thinking, would I want to have a beer with this candidate or not? So it's so far removed from how, for example, we face political elections here in the U.S., where the best predictor other than the candidate's height is who would you want to have a beer with. Right. Um, ever since the 1960s, there's so much importance to these televised debates when, in fact, they say very little about somebody's leadership potential.
0: So pin this down then. Are you arguing that we need a complete change of paradigm in terms of the kinds of leaders that we value, recognizing that less charismatic, more caring and supportive managers are more effective?
1: Yes. I think we need to really understand and appreciate the value that humility, integrity, people skills altruism, and uh, self-awareness have, I mean, we're paying lip service to these things yes. because if we sit down at dinner, we we'll say, yeah, yeah, that's important, but then they're not reflected in our choices of leaders. So first of all, we should really hire for these qualities and accept that we're mostly hiring for the opposite qualities. And then we should rely on data-driven signals or tools to detect these qualities because if we know what we're looking for but we don't know how to find it, it's not very useful either.
0: What's our resistance to doing this? I mean, I think there's been enough word out there that these values, these qualities tend to produce more effective leaders, leaders that not only drive performance, but drive high engagement and loyalty and people beating a path to come work for them. And yet we sort of, in the moment of making a decision, we go, eh, let's just hold on to the way we've always done this and just keep picking people the same way. What's going to get us to change here?
1: I mean, I think it's general, a kind of lack of effort or seriousness in developing the right expertise or competence to be able to judge leadership in others, you know? And so in voters in democratic elections or countries, well, I sort of sympathize for them because in the age of ubiquitous information, it's easier than ever to be ignorant, and misinformed. It's quite complex to determine whether somebody will be a good president or not. And it requires a lot of effort and people prefer to, you know, keep up with the Kardashians or something. And when it comes to organizations and corporations, I do hold HR professionals accountable. They have the materials, the tools, the body of knowledge to actually try to be more data-driven. And maybe what they're lacking is the ability to get buy-in from the top. But it's sort of a a vicious cycle. You know, so long as they don't demonstrate the ROI that they can add by hiring better people, they will have no credibility. And if they have no credibility, then they won't be able to make good recommendations for leaders, even when they know who should lead.
0: I'm glad you mentioned this. So I'm going to ask you a pinpoint question here. Do you think that HR managers need to have more courage to drive the message up? Or is it just so difficult to work in organizations where these things don't matter that you just you give HR a pass?
1: Yeah, and you know sometimes it is the latter. Sometimes uh, HR professionals are talented, they have good intentions, they are even courageous. But if the incentives are not in place to make unpopular decisions that are going to demonstrate an ROI in the long distant future, where people's political agendas are no longer at stake, then it's hard for them to make an impact. Sometimes I think the issue is that they are unable to do it, you know, and they are... Actually, they don't have the tools or the expertise to be able to make a difference. When people ask me, what is the number one quality that good HR directors should have? I always say, well, the ability to co-opt their CEO mm-hmm. or the C-suite. So there's a lot of influence and persuasion because there are a lot who are competent but don't have buy-in. Then having a lot of buy-in without having the right idea so the right level of competence won't get them very far either. So I think it's, it's a little bit like, focusing on short-term goals that disguise the destructive or detrimental effects of bad leadership, because then somebody changes, I change jobs, I change careers, I go to a different company, and who's gonna hold me accountable?
0: Let's talk about women leaders, because you very much believe the world would be a much better place and organizations would perform far more effectively if we actually had more women in leadership roles. And just to kind of cite a few statistics that you have in your book: only six percent of all CEOs within the S and P 500 companies are women. Women hold only twenty-five percent of all senior leadership positions, and just twenty percent of all board seats. Just tell us why.
1: Yeah, so you know, I think it has to do with obviously there are legal, political, wider cultural reasons that have to do with ingrained, systematic chauvinism and also laws that you know, make it less enticing for organizations to bet on women than men, right? So we know this. In Scandinavia, when paternity leave had been leveled or was leveled with maternity leave, immediately it led to a more balanced representation of women in leadership than men. So I'm not saying or implying for a second that those things don't exist, but I'm actually focusing on a psychological cause for this imbalance and for the underrepresentation of women leadership that had been neglected in the past, which is this pathological disconnect that there is between the attributes that seduce us in a leader and those that are actually needed to be an effective leader. The fact that we're seduced by people who are confident, charismatic, and even narcissistic, and men over index in these qualities, when in fact, what we should have is people who are competent, who have integrity and humility. And women do outperform men on these traits.
0: You mentioned a 2009 in-seed study that examined thousands of, you mentioned, 360-degree assessments. And they discovered that women outshine men in almost all leadership dimensions that they measured. So can you tell us what specific practices women tend to be better at? The big picture here, Tomás, is tell us why women leaders you believe are actually not just underrepresented, but actually could make a huge difference in driving engagement if we had more women leaders in business leadership roles?
1: Yeah. So there's maybe three or four areas that science has highlighted as indicative of what I would call broadly the the female advantage. Although really, to me, it's not even about gender as in biological sex, but actually a more feminine leadership styles so there are many men who display these positive leadership traits or stylistic characteristics because they are higher on femininity and not hyper-masculine, as our idyllic leadership archetypes are. So first, women have been found to lead in a more transformational way. They're more focused on getting spiritual or emotional buy-in for their ideas, and they change attitudes rather than behaviors. By the same token, men tend to lead in a more autocratic way, and they tend to be absentee leaders more often so you know they don't want to manage and leave their teams and followers alone without direction secondly women have been found to be more objective in their evaluations of potential and performance of others so they basically are fairer when it comes to managing others and giving feedback, critical, constructive feedback to others. They also have been found to be better communicators. They also have, to have been found to be better mentors, more interested in developing other people's talents. So sometimes skeptics argue that that's just because of a so-called sampling bias, because it is harder for women to become leaders. The ones that become leaders tend to be more qualified and more competent, which is true. But I would argue that in that case, the solution is not to make it easier for incompetent women to become leaders, mm. but post similar standards and quality control criteria for men so that the men that get kind of ascend to leadership positions are equally qualified.
0: Okay, so I want to unpack this a little bit and go back to a word that you used, which is like the third rail, if I'm a male. And that is more feminine to have a more feminine tendency in terms of how we manage. I'm sure many people listening to this who are men might just be bristling at that whole idea. It's like, I'm a guy, why would I want to be more feminine? And I think there's a broader understanding that you can bring to this that can sort of tame our instinctive negative reaction to that. So can you kind of tell us what you mean by more feminine and that this is not a weakness?
1: Yeah, exactly. So I mean it for sure as a strength rather than a weakness. But what I, what I describe as this kind of range or syndrome of more feminine personality, behavioral predispositions involves things like being more pro social than antisocial, uh, more self critical than overconfident, more altruistic, empathic, uh, considerate, polite. And in a way, having more impulse control, you know? And all these things are more feminine than masculine. Again, masculinity and femininity are two quantitative dimensions. And on average, biological females, so women, tend to over-index in femininity and biological males over-index in masculinity. But we have men who are more feminine than many women and vice versa. So what I would argue is, and this is where sometimes feminists get upset or angry at me because their view of um, persuading others that we need more women in leadership is to say women are exactly like men there are no differences and I'm actually saying no there are differences that are partly nature partly nurture but actually those differences give women an advantage so I don't want women to male males in masculinity and have a lot of people that look like Margaret Thatcher in leadership it's, When that happens, then men and women say, ah, you see, women should not be leaders because actually they repeat or replicate their mistakes. I actually want women with feminine features to lead and men with more feminine features to have more of an opportunity to become leaders. Because I think for a long time we selected too much for hyper-masculinity and we can see the results of that.
0: A couple points to that that I want to nail down. One is that there was a book called The Athena Doctrine a few years ago by John Gerzema. I can't actually remember his co-author. But basically what his premise was is that research shows across the world that since we all saw and experienced the decimation that occurred after the 2008 Great Recession, that feminine values became ascended. That we started to say, hey, we want people in leadership roles to have more of these feminine values. So there's sort of an empirical validation for what you just said. There's also something you wrote in the book that I was like, thank you for saying this, which is that we hear this language, lean in, this advice to women to say, lean in and be more male-like and that's not really what will make them successful. It's like be yourself, women, be the kinds of person that you are naturally and don't sort of take on, ascribe more masculine values in order to fit in. Is that your point?
1: Yeah, exactly, and you know, I'm sure Cheryl Sandberg meant well when she said this, and I'm sure everybody who ascribes to the kind of lenient movement has good intentions. But the argument is nonsensical to me. It doesn't make sense. First, it's empirically flawed because there is very little evidence that in the industrialized, civilized, or rich world, women have lower aspirations or interests in being leaders. Willingness to lead is equally distributed among the sexes or the genders. And there are in many, many rich countries today more women who want to be leaders than men, who want to be leaders. So Hmm. it doesn't make sense to say, well, the the reason why there aren't more women in leadership is because they don't want it enough, or they're not displaying it enough, or they are not as ambitious as men. Secondly, there has never been a correlation between putting yourself forward for something and actually being good at something. You only need to watch two minutes of American Idol to see (laughs) people's interest in being the next pop star don't guarantee that they have any musical talent. And it's the same for leadership. I would even say if you're not putting yourself forward for a leadership role and you're not leaning in, I should be paying a lot of attention to you because you're probably focused on doing your job, on managing your team and not on kind of managing up. And finally, I think the main issue that I would have with the lean-in kind of paradigm is that it actually perpetuates the flawed, standards that are in place today, right? So first of all, it's too easy. We're just blaming women because they don't lean in, so it's their fault that there's not more of them in leadership roles. And secondly, it's an excuse to leave all the criteria, the parameters, and the rules of the game as they are. As we've been saying, that doesn't lead to very positive results. It actually leads to a lot of, so we shouldn't ask women to imitate incompetent men. We should accept that we're not very competent choosing leaders and focus not on whether they lean in or not, but on how competent they actually are.
0: Very well said. Thank you. Glad I dug into that with you a little bit. I want to ask my audience a question here, so get ready to answer this in your mind. According to science, which of the following six qualities is known to be the most important ingredient of leadership talent? So again, which of the following six qualities that I'm about to read is known to be the most important ingredient of leadership talent? Is it hard work, connections, luck, confidence, intelligence, or expertise? So I hope you have your answer. And Tomas actually asked this question to his speaking audiences, and I obviously can't aggregate the responses that you all have, I will tell you that 80% of the people that he has asked in the past have picked the word confidence. And ironically, confidence proves to be the least important quality than all the others. So back to you, Tomas, please tell us why we think confidence is so important to leadership effectiveness and management selection and why we have it all wrong.
1: Yes, I think the reason why we focus so much on confidence when we try to infer leadership potential in others is because confidence is the easiest thing to observe you know so i can tell by looking at you how assertive you are whether you are, you know, inhibited or whether you feel kind of free in your interactions with others, et cetera. So I can see very easily how loud you are, you know, to use kind of, if, if we use Susan Cain's kind of quiet versus loud analogy for mm-hmm. version introversion, well, it applies, it overlaps with confidence a lot. and um, That's certainly a lot easier than, thinking whether you're actually good at something or not, especially on something as complex as leadership. 100,000 years ago, leadership potential was easy to observe. It was about physical strengths, being fearless, tall, and then you knew whom to follow. Today, I have to work out whether you have critical ability, intelligence, curiosity, good judgment, and that's very abstract. I think then it's also true that we're living in an era that really celebrates and worships confidence. And I have no doubt that self-belief at some point in our recent history was very instrumental as a catalyst of progress and business success and productivity. But if we spend so much celebrating self-belief and we really persuade people that confidence is good or best when it's high and that the more of it you have, the better off you are, then we have a problem the healthiest amount or the optimum amount of confidence is that with aligns with your actual abilities. It helps to know whether you can cross a busy junction just before the traffic lights are changing. It doesn't help to think you can when you can't. And I don't know about you, but personally I would like the person performing a root canal on me, the dentist performing a root canal, the doctor performing heart surgery, or the pilot flying my plane, I prefer them to be competent than confident. You know, So this seems very obvious, and yet because we just hear all this advice, oh, you can be anything you want. If you think you're great, you are. Don't worry about what people think of you. It promotes this cult of self-belief. And then... People end up blaming themselves if they don't succeed for thinking, oh, I'm just not deluded enough. By the way, we also know that there's no better way to persuade others that you are better than you actually are if you have persuaded yourself first. This is why self deception is so adaptive. If I'm totally deluded, I will experience no insecurities, I will be unaware of my limitations, and then Ironically, in short term interactions, I might persuade you that I'm actually good because you'll be like trying to sense my anxieties and my confidence as opposed to checking whether I actually know my stuff or not.
0: Why are we so susceptible to this? In your book, you've got like half a page of these statistics. Most of us think we're above average drivers. Ninety-four percent of professors think they're excellent, and we think we're from Lake Wobegon—you know, above average in all things. And that holds us all back from growth, right? That lack of understanding, self-awareness, and humility. So how do you kind of reverse that? How do we get the humility back where we sort of look at ourselves and say, maybe I'm not quite as good as everything I think I am?
1: Yeah, you know, so I think in a way, collectively, the process, again, will tend to correct itself because if you compare two organizations, two groups, or two countries, or two cultures where one perpetuates self-deception and where people always prefer a self-enhanced distorted fake view of the world to a reality check and the other one is the opposite the one that actually is able to grasp and come to terms with reality might feel a bit less happy to begin with but there will be more effective later on right and here I always use my country of origin, Argentina, as an example, as a case study, because, you know, Argentina was one of the richest countries in the world in 1870. And people today, 130, 140 years later, still think that it is a really rich, prosperous, and important nation. So even though we've been in perpetual decline since there, our egos have not adjusted or aligned with reality. So if you compare that to, I don't know, a South Korea, a Singapore, even Germany, countries that were destroyed not so long ago and through realization and self-critical awareness that things were tough and difficult, actually tried to close the gap with humility and hard work. Anything is possible if you go down that path. And deterioration is almost guaranteed if you go down the path of Argentina.
0: Well, We just had this example of Elizabeth Holmes at Theranos, (laughs) and it was delusional in terms of what she thought she could accomplish, but, you know, 100% A-plus scores for confidence. And she duped a lot of people. So I wonder if you have any insight on that. Like, how are so many people completely bamboozled by her whole, not just her presentation physically, but... The facade that she created and got so much money invested in something that was clearly never going to work.
1: Yeah, so, you know, and it's interesting. Obviously, it's very hard to know this for sure, but with her, I think that rather than self deceived or deluded, she was more of an imposter, you know, somebody who was very shrewd at deceiving others. I think that, yeah, you could say, okay, what can drive somebody? To be so destructive, manipulative, and have such parasitic effects, you know, in a way, very similar case study to Bernie Madoff, right? But mm-hmm. the female, young, and in the tech world. But the more interesting, I mean, yeah, clearly some antisocial, narcissistic, and psychopathic tendencies there. What's interesting is how she could deceive all these smart people. And I think there, and I just finished watching the HBO documentary on it, which has done Ariely talking about it in very eloquent terms, as always. So I was very glad to see him there describing it. Even very smart people would go to great lengths to see what they want to see. So you had people like Henry Kissinger and all the other board members, super smart. George Schultz. Mm -hmm. Even when presented with the evidence that this was fraud, and she was unable to accomplish even one percent of what she said she would they didn't want to admit it because it would equate to admitting that they were foolish themselves right and that they were stupid so if there is even a small tiny probability of an alternative view of the world that makes you feel good about yourself you're going to do it even when you're very smart and Rupert Murdoch another example so anyway so I think. You know, it also goes to show that in an age of so much evidence, so much access to fact, information, ironically, in Silicon Valley, which is the ideal ecosystem where data-driven decisions and smart thinking should be the main culture that governs behavior, people care more about style than substance. And you have a young, attractive, white female with the right network behind her of very accomplished, powerful white man. And then people assume, okay, this for sure is true and I should invest money in it and I'll be rich. Who cares about the details?
0: Thank you. I wasn't expecting to go there, but you sort of tipped it in my mind and you gave a really great explanation because this is obviously we're talking about leadership and making good decisions. And this plays into it very much so. so
1: Yeah, if I may just add, you know, on Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, because, of course, this has even been a reaction to my book because I talk a lot about the problem of narcissism and psychopathy in male leaders. And people say, oh, what about Elizabeth Holmes? And it's like, yeah, she's probably as high on these toxic traits as the men that I mentioned but let's not forget she is a product of the same system she really perfected and refined the deception game that so many effective, well personally successful narcissistic and psychopathic male leaders excel at so what we're saying is not that women are incapable of this but it doesn't happen that often but hey, if these are the rules of the game they can be applied to a very destructive end, also by women.
0: So how do we individually become a little bit more self-aware and tamp down the abuses of humility, I'll call it?
1: So here I have a bias that I am self-aware of, which is my main interest and background has always been on assessment, selection, and trying to understand potential. And I think even when you look at things like coaching and development, People can change, but not everybody changes. Not everybody has the same propensity to change. And even when coaching and development can make you better, I can usually predict whether you will respond to coaching and development through an assessment of your potential. And to be more specific here, if you have humility, if you have curiosity, if you are self-critical, if you have emotional intelligence, and if you are driven to achieve great things and get better, you will probably be more self-aware, and that will make you more coachable. Most coaching interventions start by trying to develop self-awareness, but there are some individuals who are disinterested in understanding their limitations. And for them, maybe there's very little hope. I think roughly one-third of leaders are extremely coachable to the point that even if we didn't do anything, they would have gotten better. One-third can improve a little bit, but it's hard work. And one third are beyond hope of (laughs) of changing, you know, because they will be defensive, angry, or indifferent to any evidence that they need to improve.
0: What percentage of organizations that do 360 assessments on their leaders will go back a year or two later to see whether or not people have actually taken the information to heart and made changes and hold people accountable for it?
1: Yeah, great question. So I don't have that statistic, but I would guess that it is a very small percentage. You know, first of all, there is not that many organizations that use well-functioning, well-designed 360s and decide to act on it. A lot of the times it's literally a box-ticking exercise. And then secondly, a lot of the times, as you say, there is no disciplined attempt to actually see whether... People have improved and to use the 360 as a diagnostic measure of improvements, which is what should be done. Recently, I was speaking at a large organization and one of the leaders said, oh, well, you know, you speak very positively about 360s. Um, I'm, I'm not buying it. I don't think that they are a good measure of leadership effectiveness. You know, I've had bad experiences with them, which tells you everything you need to know yes. about the performance. Mm-hmm. And then the person asked me, what alternative is there? 360s and i said well the alternative is good leadership in a logical world there would be no need for 360s or assessments because leaders would know how to crowdsource a reputation and they would collect feedback from others on a regular basis and they would be mature and unemotional enough to change their behaviors according to that but in the real world we live in most employees are afraid to criticize their bosses or to even provide them with candid, polite, constructive negative feedback.
0: Well, I think it's because we put people through this exercise. And so we send out surveys to all their direct reports and say, please tell us what you think of this manager. And then they get their report and no one is held accountable for making any changes. And so they go back to managing people the exact same way. So people lose trust in this process. And it's always mystified me that we hadn't taken it more seriously. And that if you're going to bring in a company to do this for you, or if you're going to do it yourself, that there's, you know, we're coming back. We check oil, we check teeth. Why don't we check leadership effectiveness and say, we're coming back in six months and we're going to do the same process again, or we're going to spot check 15% of your employees and just see how things are going. And so we're expecting that you're going to, build the plan, you're going to live out the plan, and you're going to have improvement. It seems ridiculous to me that two-thirds of people in management roles will go through a leadership coaching process and make minimal, if any, improvement at all. That's kind of what you're saying. Mm
1: -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and it's, you know, maybe the simplest example or analogy is, is imagine that you have a weight problem, you weigh yourself in a scale, you come up with an exercise plan or a diet nutrition plan, and then you don't want to go up on the scale again, right? Or you want to change the scale. Or yeah. <laughs> actually, once a manager say, well, the problem is not my performance, but the people who are rating me. So if we can change the raters, you will see that I improved. So this person wanted to literally replace his raters with some people that saw him more positively. And you can also realize that, you know, even if the person doesn't change, the ratings probably will remain the same.
0: Man, if we just accepted we're human, you know, we'd get a lot farther in life, I think. Tomas, we're going to change gears here for a moment and move into a segment of the podcast that we call the heartbeat round, We're interested in learning a little more about you personally, your influences, life philosophy. And so I have a short series of questions that I'd like to ask you and ask you to answer them in a heartbeat.
1: You up for this? Yeah, sure. Let's go. This should be fun. (laughs) Okay, cool. All
0: right. One male CEO or world leader you
1: greatly admire? Armancio Ortega, the founder of Zara, the retail chain.
0: One female CEO or world leader you greatly admire?
1: Angela Merkel, the German chancellor.
0: One book, not of the leadership genre, that profoundly influenced your life?
1: Bertrand Russell's A History of Western Philosophy, which made me study philosophy. And, you know, I still like to reread every now and then.
0: One book of the leadership genre that profoundly influenced your life?
1: Um, Well, it isn't a leadership book in theory, but I think it is the best leadership book ever written. David Ogilvy's Confessions of an Atman, the advertising guru and tycoon. Great leadership book.
0: I did not know until I read your book that he was the centerpiece for the show Mad Men. I never realized that before, so that was cool.
1: It's not official, but I think for sure there was some inspiration there.
0: Since you grew up in an area of Buenos Aires, Argentina, nicknamed Villa or Via Freud, what's one valuable insight you can share from Sigmund Freud?
1: Many things, but I would say the fact that the human mind is a powerful Deception organ, especially self deception organ, and that, you know, most people are deluded.
0: Newspaper or magazine you never miss reading. Uh, The Economist. The quality you admire most in other people. Probably sarcasm. The quality you least admire in other people. Stupidity. One thing few people know about you.
1: Um, uh, I am addicted to mustard.
0: (laughs) I wish we had more time to go there with you. Favorite thing you do on a weekend? Uh, Play soccer. Skill improvement you're working on right now. Trying to be more patient. Quality you believe that derails the most leadership careers. Arrogance. Your synonym
1: for the word heart. Oof, this is heart. Maybe soul?
0: (laughs) The life lesson you wish you'd learned much earlier in life.
1: Um, That you can learn something from anybody, even the people you expect to learn the least from.
0: And one piece of wisdom that you think could change all of our lives.
1: There'll be focus less on yourself and more on other people.
0: Thank you, I'm always so glad to do this and you have totally impressed me with your answers. So thank you very much and let's get back. I wanna transition to another big section of your book. You've proven that the most effective leaders are equally strong in IQ intelligence and EQ emotional intelligence. And you say that they display for all intents and purposes a balance between mind and heart, male and female traits. And in your book, you describe three highly important leadership competencies that you say are enabled by having this higher emotional intelligence. So can you tell us what each of these three are with some brief guidance on how we can cultivate them in ourselves?
1: Mm -hmm. So the first is transformational leadership, which overlaps significantly with EQ. So when leaders have higher EQ, they're able to connect with their teams more, build good rapport, empathy, understand what they're thinking, feel what they're feeling. And this has always been important, but it's going to be more and more important as AI automates some of the more rational, objective, and data-driven aspects of leadership. Because the last things machine will be able to do is to empathize with people. And humans will always crave human validation, approval, and guidance. So they lead in a more transformational way. The second is personal effectiveness, the ability to manage yourself, control your impulses, you know, identify triggers that may derail you or your behavior, and really be a stable influence on your subordinates and your reports. And the final is self-awareness. And I would even go as far as to say with a healthy degree of self-criticism and even insecurity. It sounds crazy to say, oh, let's hire or promote people into leadership who are insecure. But actually, a lot of the best performing leaders have modest or moderate amount of sort of imposter syndrome. You know, They don't believe their own hype. Even when they accomplish things, they are their own worst critic. And this enables them to remain humble and actually, if anything, over-prepare and be serious about their performance and their personal development. So all these things are enabled not by IQ, but by EQ. If on top of these things you have le- high learning ability and curiosity, which IQ gives you, then you have a leader with a very strong potential.
0: So let me take them one at a time. Transformational leadership is the ability to engage people in a deep emotional level. So how do you do this?
1: Well, so it's about not using your authority and your power to change behaviors, but to actually get emotional buying and support for your vision and for what you're trying to do. Ultimately, one of the fundamental things that leaders should do is to persuade individuals to work together to accomplish something that they couldn't accomplish individually. And a transformational leader creates a change in people's attitudes that persuades them and inspires them to actually work together for that task. How it's done, if the question is how you do it, what's the exact recipe and formula? The answer is there is no universal recipe, but leaders with high emotional intelligence will work out exactly how to develop or establish this personal connection with people And it will be different with each individual because it will require them to understand that person's point of view, that person's attitudes, and how to persuade somebody that they need to be on board.
0: How do you get somebody? How do you influence or help someone? Or how can I individually, you know, going about it my own way? cultivate an ability to feel into people, to have a sense of what people are thinking and feeling, even like a clairvoyance or an intuition, if you will. Like you're sending out an email and you're going to send it out to people wherever your people are and you can sort of relate to them and think about how is this communication that I'm about to send them going to make them feel because this is a big part of this transformational and even the personal effectiveness element of this and yet I think we sort of shut this down and say you know we don't really think you need to be doing these things and yet they're very much the core elements of this transformational leadership you're talking about so how do I get there
1: So the good news here is that although people differ in their kind of innate ability or at least predisposition to connect with others and influence others and read others, actually most of the variability in transformational leadership depends on people's willingness to do this or not. And your questions are right on point because really the key thing is to want to pay attention to what other people are thinking or feeling. And in essence, be less self-centered. Understand that you're not the center of the universe. And if you want to have effective relationships with others and influence others, you need to step out of your own kind of selfish interests or individualistic, egocentric view of the world and ask this question, what does this person want? why are they thinking as they are, what are they actually thinking, and what's interesting or relevant to them. It's really as simple as Dale Carnegie says in How to Win Friends and Influence People. You know, not just the first self-help book ever written, but the best and only really, really timeless self-help book ever written, which is basically, that's what empathy is about. Stop thinking about yourself talk to others in terms of what they're interested in and try to see things from their perspective. All humans have the ability to do this, but mostly we are unwilling because we're too focused on ourselves. But it's a great advantage if you can step outside your own egosyntonic world and understand things from other people's perspectives.
0: Very good. Do we think as leaders, do we sort of lean towards a self-focus, like, you know, I'm on top of the world here. Do you think that the power of a role of, of a manager or leader, particularly at senior levels, sort of, you know, influences to lean in a more self-focused way?
1: Mm-hmm, absolutely. And that's, as the old say goes, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely, yes. And if the incentives that are put in place in most corporations for people to want to become leader are, incredible pay, benefits, power, status. Even people who are moderately narcissistic may become more narcissistic as they climb up the organizational ladder. This is why I think the fundamental problem is not having a leader with some narcissistic tendencies, we all do. But the fact that most leaders are unable to keep their narcissism in check as they become more influential and more powerful. But the best and most effective leaders do, and mostly by paying attention to others rather than themselves. I
0: used to, when I was managing people, I would ask them, you know, in private conversations typically, if I was working with them on their review or something uh, it was over with, I would say, hey, could you do me a favor? Can you just tell me one thing that you think that I do really well as a manager? And of course, they just want a curry favor with you. So they, you know, they start gushing, oh, you're the greatest, you're the most wonderful, you know, I've never had anybody like you and, you know, on and on and on it goes. And so you take all that in and you thank them and you say, okay, that's really wonderful. And then you say, now that you've given me something that's really great, tell me one thing that I might improve upon. And they go, oh no, you don't have anything to improve upon. I already told you, you're really great. No, you've really given me great validation that I do a few things well. So just tell me one thing that in your mind you think, if I could get better at this, that I would be a better manager. And what came afterwards was a major punch in the stomach. They had been thinking about this for a long time. They had a gripe. They had some resentment. And I remember doing this and thinking, you know, how much longer am I going to take this kind of self-punishment? But I grew so much from it because it's like if you can just demonstrate to people that, hey, I'm taking this seriously. And if this matters to you, then I'm going to fix it. And when people saw evidence that they fixed it, it just built so much esprit de corps and so much respect and so much trust. And honestly, it was just the greatest way for me to grow, even more than the 360 process. Just hearing people say, if you could do this a little bit more or this a little bit less, things are going to be great. That's kind of the way it worked out. I'm just throwing it out because it was such an effective tool. It was so simple, even though obviously it was painful.
1: It's a great example. And I think, you know, first of all, yes, no pain, no gain, you know, so much like when you go to the gym, if you only exercise the muscle that you exercise all the time, you're not going to develop much. So when you suddenly change, you realize, oh, this is painful. Well, that's how you become better. Secondly, there's so much emphasis on helping leaders give feedback to others, but actually, absorbing or taking it in from others is probably even more important and leaders struggle with this a lot your examples are right on point because you have to make it easy for others to criticize you you can't say was i amazing was this good are you happy is everything fine because you're going to get a positive response especially because people want to suck up to you and want (laughs) to please you Mm -hmm. so ask them what could i have done better or where did i disappoint you what are the things that you would have done differently in my place. Please be honest and don't worry about it. Then you create the habit and you can really learn and become better.
0: Totally agree. Tomas, I've saved one final question for you, and it's really more about turning the floor over to you and giving you an opportunity to share some final thoughts. There are so many more ideas in your book. It's very compact, but things we might not have gotten to. So what's something that hasn't come up yet that you think could really help our audience either become better managers or hire better managers going forward?
1: Yes, it's a great question. And I think we've covered a lot of ground, but maybe the one that I would really add, which we sort of covered, but I want to highlight a bit more, is that The biggest thing that organizations can do if they want to improve on these issues and have not just more women leaders, but also better leaders in place, is to actually get more serious at measuring leadership performance. You know, we do it in professional athletics, in sports teams, where we look at clear KPIs, what's the team performance, and then we can say, okay, this manager or coach is performing, yes or no but we don't do it in most organizations. So you know we need to have almost like Uber-like metrics Mm -hmm. if you think of the driver, not just how they're rated by others, but how much money they bring in, do they crash, do they have a clean license, the good behavior, the bad behavior, how many rides they do, do they cancel. We have to get really analytical and algorithmic at comparing leaders to each other and seeing how they impact their teams And then if you do that well, you'll get better at prediction, you'll get better at development, and we'll start to separate the world from perception from the world of reality, which is where we should be.
0: Fantastic. Tomas Jamaro, I cannot thank you enough. I wish you fantastic success with your new book. And it was absolutely a thrilling conversation. So on behalf of my audience, thank you so much for making time to be with us. Thank you again for having me.
1: You bet. Take care. Bye-bye, Mark. Bye-bye.
0: Before we go, I'd like to quickly thank my wonderful team, including Ken Boynton, Susan DeRoche, webmaster Randy Yant, and my producer, Eric Oz. And I also invite you to connect with me, whether it be on Twitter, where I'm at Mark C. Crowley, LinkedIn, Mark C. Crowley, and Facebook, Lead from the Heart. And to also share any thoughts and feedback you might have for us. I love hearing from you and give great thanks to those of you who regularly tweet or otherwise tell us how we're doing. And I'll leave you, as always, with my one final and consistent thought. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow. This is Mark C. Crowley, thanking you for listening in and signing off for now.